church, we are in a series that we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark over the last several weeks. And one of the things that, that often I think about is how many people view Jesus. And the reality is oftentimes we view Jesus as this mild, meek, oftentimes weak man who just wanted to live in harmony and with everyone that never wanted to have controversy in his life. In fact, oftentimes when we look at Jesus, we think about uh, this, this hymn that many of you probably sang as a child, written by Charles Wesley. It was called Jesus, Gentle, Meek, and Mild. Anybody ever heard that hymn? A few of you had, so I apologize for those you've heard it. Because the reality, listen, the reality is, the reality is that Jesus, when you look through the Gospels, was anything but. In fact, yes, Jesus was full of love. Jesus was full of compassion. But from the very beginning of his life, he provoked others. In fact, Jesus was never hesitated to, de to defy man-made rules and regulations. In fact, Jesus, throughout his life, challenged the status quo of his day. So much so that the establishment set out to destroy him. They set out to get rid of him. They said the only option we have is to get rid of him. And we see this specifically in Mark chapters 2 and chapter 3. Because what God is doing in those two chapters is Jesus is establishing who he is and why he came. He's making it abundantly clear at the beginning of this gospel of Mark. He's saying, here's who I am and here's why I came. And when he did that, it, it created these headbutts constantly with the religious establishment. In fact, over the last couple of weeks, we've already seen two of them. The first one is when Jesus looks at the paralytic man in, in, in Mark chapter 2, at the beginning of this chapter, and he looks at this man and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. In other words, what Jesus was saying, because God and only God can forgive sins, and because I am God, I am telling you, your sins are forgiven. So in that moment, the religious establishment knew that Jesus was saying that he is God. He was proclaiming his deity. But he doesn't stop there. The next thing you see, we looked at it last week, where Jesus calls this man named Levi, who was a tax collector, one of the most despised people in all of the, all of the community. He calls him to become a follower of him. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. And he goes and he has dinner and he eats and he reclines at the table with other tax collectors and sinners. And so in those two stories, he's showing who he is. He is the son of God. And why he came, he came to reach people that are far from God. And picking up in Mark chapter 2 and verse 18, what we're going to see is that Jesus continues to press in on the status quo. He continues to upset tradition and tip over sacred cows. And we're going to see him doing this in, in three different instances where Jesus completely and totally ignores the religious rituals and the rules, and he offends the religious folks in huge ways. Because the people that Jesus is going to encounter in this text, they know religion. They know the rules. They know the regulations. 
Like, they know this. In fact, many of them had probably memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And so Jesus, when he talks to them, I mean, they, they know this by heart. They've memorized the rules. They got it all down. But here's what they don't know. They don't know the life-transforming power of a personal relationship with God. Oh, they followed the rules to a T. But they didn't know what it meant to have a personal relationship with God. I don't know about you, but over the years, I've noticed that the hardest people to deal with are the religious folks. Anybody ever recognize that? Like religious people are the most difficult people to deal with. Why? Because they value legalism. They value rules. They value regulations more than they do people. And that makes them so difficult. That's why Paul said to Timothy, as Timothy was starting out in ministry, he said, they have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And then he tells Timothy, listen, avoid those people. Avoid those people. Avoid the religious folks that all they know is rules, regulation, legalism. Get away from them. Why? Because there's power in this relationship with God. And so we pick up in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, and here's what it says. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him, came to Jesus, and they said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So he raises this question about fasting. For those of you who don't know what fasting is, fasting is a spiritual discipline where you, where you neglect something physical in order to grow spiritually. Oftentimes it means that you're going to forsake food for a period of time in an effort in, in, to seek God. And so it's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate question that is brought to Jesus. The Pharisees fast. John's disciples fast. So Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Why don't your followers fast? Why don't they follow the, the religious order and the religious rituals of the day? What makes you so different, Jesus? Now, before we get to his answer, I just want to take a moment and, and just make an observation. And it's this. How you and I live reflects who we follow. How we live reflects who we follow. In other words, our lives are a reflection of who or what is most important to us. In other words, we begin to emulate, we begin to model, we begin to live like the person we follow. And so if, if, if you are emulating you know, a famous TikToker or YouTuber or athlete or somebody popular in school, if that's what you're emulating, that's who you're following, whether you realize it or not. And if what drives you is career or relationships or popularity or money or some particular sin in your life, if that's what drives you, guess what? That is what you're following right now. Why? Because who we follow is a reflection of how we live our lives. Or how we live our lives is a reflection of who we follow. So here, here's the question. Who is the greatest influence on your life right now? And I know some of you are going, hey, I got this answer. It's Jesus. 
Well, then the question is, how are you reflecting him? Because who you follow, or, or how you live, is a reflection of who you follow. And here's the amazing part. And this is the beauty of the gospel, which we're going to get into later. Is that what God commands you and I to do. And he commands us to reflect him, to be an image bearer of Jesus. We're to reflect the image of Jesus to a lost and dying world. But here's the beauty of the gospel. What God calls you to do, you can't do. Apart from Jesus Christ, you and I can't live for Jesus Christ. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus came to live that life for us. It's the song we just sang a few moments ago. Jesus came to live that life for us. And then he offers us grace. He offers us mercy. He offers us, offers us grace where we fall short. So the very life that God calls you to live, you can't live. Jesus lived it for you. And then he offers you grace where you fall short. And yes, we all should be following Jesus. We should all be becoming more and more and more like him. But at the same time, when we're not, God offers us grace for forgiveness and grace for the power to change our lives. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of what he teaches us. So let's get back to this idea of fasting. That was just an observation. That was free of charge. Now back to the message, back to the text. So here's this idea of fasting is... is the, uh, the Old Testament only commanded fasting one time a year. Once a year, in the Old Testament law, it says that you're to fast. And that day is Yom Kippur. Many of you probably heard that. It's the Day of Atonement. It's the day that the priest would offer the sacrifice of a lamb and the sacrificial lamb that would be set off into the wilderness as atonement for the sins of Israel. And it was on that day... That God told the people of Israel to fast. To abstain from food as a reflection, as a picture of their forgiveness of sins. But here's what the Pharisees would do. The Pharisees would fast two times a week. So they added 103 different times of fasting to that. 104. Whatever that, I can't do the math in my head. But they, God says do it once. They did it twice a week. So that's 103 extra times of fasting is what they did. And so they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Every single week. They would fast and they would, they would wear this fast as a badge of honor. It was a picture of their godliness, of their holiness. And, and they would, but here's the problem. And Jesus tells us this in the other gospels. They did it not to grow closer to God. They did it to be seen by others. And here's, here's, what, here's what the Pharisees would do. They would, on, the, on Mondays and Thursdays, they would put ash on their head. They would, they, would, they would make their bodies and their faces pale by putting powder on their face. They would walk around almost mournful and sullen. And, and they, would, they, would, they wouldn't bathe on those days, which was pleasant uh, back in, the, in those days if they didn't bathe because they did not have Old Spice deodorant. So, I mean, it, you can imagine... Uh, the stench, and so they would they wouldn't they wouldn't bathe. They, their clothes would be all disarrayed. They wouldn't iron their robes that day. Their hair would be a mess. Wait, some of you are fasting right now, aren't you? I can tell. 
But that's what they would do. And they would walk around without any joy and they would be mournful and they would be sad. But listen, church, isn't that what religion does? Religion takes away the joy of seeking God. When we're stuck in religion and we're forsaking a relationship with God, it takes away all of the joy. And listen to what happens next in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, there's a party going on and you're missing it. The party is happening and you don't even know it. What's he referencing? He's referencing these wedding days. And weddings back then were not like weddings today. Weddings in the Old, in the old and New Testament times, they were a seven-day celebration. And during those seven days, the entire community would come around this couple and they would celebrate with eating and drinking and dancing, this massive celebration for seven days. And there would be this huge, huge party and all of your other responsibilities were set along to the side. You were able to cease all activity, including religious activities. So in other words, during a wedding feast, even the, the Pharisees wouldn't fast their Monday and Thursday fast. The entire community would celebrate. And Jesus was teaching them and showing them this, this really deep meaning. And unless we understand the history of it, we've, we can skim right past this picture. Because the moment he starts bringing up the bridegroom and the celebration of the wedding, instantly the, the Pharisees and all those listening would have gone back to the Old Testament and realized... That the picture that God continually talks about in the Old Testament was this picture of God being the bridegroom, pursuing his bride, Israel. It was this picture of God pursuing, chasing after his people, Israel. And so when Jesus says this, instantly they knew the picture that he was portraying. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was picturing that God is pursuing his people. And here's what Jesus is telling him. He's saying, listen, guys, the wedding feast is happening now. God is here now. The God who pursues his people has come now. Jesus is saying, you guys are missing the party. What you don't realize is that the Messiah, the one you've been longing for, the one you've been seeking after, is right in front of you in this moment. Saying the Messiah has come. But here, here for those of us that are, that are past the resurrection, for those of us that are New Testament Christians, this is even more exciting because the Bible, the New Testament says that you and I, if we're followers of Christ, are the bride of Christ. So think about this picture. The Old Testament, they grasp it. But for us, it's even, it's even more significant because Jesus pursues you. Jesus wants you. Jesus chases after you. In fact, Jesus loves you so much that he died for you. And that's this picture that we get in this text, that God loves us, and because he loves us, you and I are worthy. So over the years, I've done countless weddings. And as a pastor, you know, what happens in a wedding ceremony is, is always get to walk out with the groom. 
And we walk out and we stand in front of the crowd and, and then we wait. And we wait as the, the, the wedding party comes forward. And what happens? It's, a, it's a, such an incredible picture. I mean, you, you've got the, the groomsmen and they come forward. And you've got the bridesmaids and they come forward. And then everything stops. And then there's this anticipation. What is that anticipation for? It's for the bride. Everybody stands, the music changes, and the bride, the doors fling open and the bride walks in. And I love looking at the groom when the bride walks in. Because there's such love and devotion and affection. And every single wedding I've done for every single groom, there is this moment where he just wants to shout, there, there's my bride. So what Jesus is showing us, listen, that you and I are the bride of Christ. And Jesus is looking at you and he's looking at me just like a groom looks at his bride when she walks down that aisle. He's saying, that, that, that is my bride. That, that person, that church is who I came for. I came for them. And he's telling us in this moment, listen, get caught up in the celebration. Get caught up in the party. Jesus is our, is, is our bridegroom. We are his bride and he's come for us. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that Jesus paints here. But he goes on. He says, not only is fasting not fitting, your old tired religion doesn't fit either. Listen to what he says. He says, your joyless religion, this idea of earning God's favor, this idea of attempting to be seen by others through your religious rituals, they don't fit. Look what he says. No one, verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away. The new from the old. And a worse tear is made. So I want you to get this picture. What he's showing is if you had holes in your jeans, which I know none of you would patch your holes in your jeans now because you bought them that way. But let's just say that for some reason you did and you would take a, a new piece of cloth and put it on the old piece of cloth. Well, what would happen to the new piece of cloth? The first time you washed it, it would do what? Shrink. And so what Jesus is picturing is this cloth, this new cloth being sewn onto old cloth. And the moment it shrinks, it tears a larger hole in the old cloth. And then he goes on. If you didn't get that picture, he says, and, verse 22, no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. So also are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So here's, here's what happened. So in those, in those times, they didn't have bottles that they would put their wine in. So after the, the wine was created, they would put it in wineskins. And as the wine would ferment and it would, and it would uh, mature, what would happen is if you put wine, new wine in an old wineskin, that old wineskin had no more flexibility in it. And so what would happen is that wine would ferment and as it would expand, it would burst the wineskin. So Jesus is saying, listen, new wine goes in new wineskins. Why? Because new wineskins have the ability to flex. They have the ability to expand. They're not going to burst. And so what he is saying is this. He, 
is the new cloth. He is the new wine. He didn't come to fit into their old religious system. Isn't that what we do with Jesus, though? We want him to fit into our lives as opposed to making our lives new. You see, oftentimes we say, Jesus, I I like my life the way it is now. I want it to kind of stay the way it is. But here's what I want to do, Jesus. I want to give you this little portion of it. I want to give you this little slice of the pie. If you'll just stay here, I'll pick you up off the shelf uh, when I need you. But here's what Jesus says. Listen, listen. He says, no, that's not the way it works. He says, I'm not a slice of your life. I am your entire life. I didn't come to fit into your old way of doing life. I came to make you new. I came to bring you into a new creation. My goal, Jesus is saying, is to take over your entire life. Like the wine that would go into the wineskin, my kingdom is going to expand in your life. It's going to grow in your life. It's going to consume every inch of your life. And that is what he's saying here. He's saying, listen, you aren't coming to me in, in, the, in, in this old manner of just me fitting into your life. I came to consume and take over your life. And yet so often we just want to take Jesus and make him fit into our old system. And he says, listen, I'm not coming into the old you. In fact, I'm going to make you new. That's why, that's why Scripture says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? New creation. You're not an old creation anymore. You have been made new. And he says the old is gone. The new has come. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. But the religious folks don't get it. They bought into this idea of empty religion. This idea that they were primarily concerned with do's and don'ts. See, they thought righteousness. They thought godliness. They thought holiness was following a list of do's and don'ts. And let's be honest, it's mostly don'ts. And Jesus is saying, listen, that's not why I came. Christianity is not about do's and don'ts. Christianity is about done. Christianity is about what Jesus has done for you and for me because you and I can't do it on our own. That's what Christianity is about. Jesus lived the life that you and I could never live. He died the death that you and I 100% deserve. We're not made righteous by following a list of rules. We're made righteous through what Jesus has done for us. Through his work of atonement. Through his cross. Through his death. Through his blood. That is how you and I are made righteous. That is how we're made right with God. Not by following a list of rules. But the religious folks don't get it. And here's what happens. Mark moves on to this next story. And, it, and again, he's showing how this old tired religion of the Pharisees, this, I, this, this, this religion of doing for God as opposed to resting in what God has done. And he moves from fasting to the Sabbath. Let's pick up what he says. In verse 23. One Sabbath... As he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way. This is Jesus and his disciples. His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him. Look. Why are you doing what is not lawful on 
the Sabbath? Again, this is a legit question. Like, Jesus, why do you allow your disciples to do something that the Old Testament law has forbidden? Are you telling us, Jesus, that you are above the law? Are you telling us that you don't have to follow the law? Here's the problem. Nowhere in the Mosaic law does it say that picking grain and eating it is unlawful. Nowhere in Scripture, in fact, Mosaic law is very clear. In Leviticus 23, it says this, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day, that is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. So here's what, here's what it's saying. People were not allowed to work for a profit on the Sabbath. The disciples weren't working for a profit. They were just eating. They were actually doing something that the Old Testament had had permitted people to do in fact if you read the book of ruth ruth that's how she survived when she and naomi moved back to israel that's how they survived by plucking the the grain that was left on the stalks that's all the disciples were doing they were taking the grain rubbing it together and eating it but that's what happens with old tired religion right the pharisees weren't judging the disciples based on the law of moses they were judging disciples based on the tradition of man see for hundreds of years at this point people had been adding to the scripture they've been adding rules to the law and what they had in effect done, they had made what was designed to be a blessing, the Sabbath, a day of rest, and they had turned it into a burden. And here's how they did it. They added all these additional rules. Let me just walk through a few of them for you. It was forbidden to walk more than 3,000 steps on the Sabbath. So you'd have to be watching your Fitbit all the time. 2,099, I guess i got to stay here till sundown. So you couldn't, you could only walk three, hey, listen to this, a fire, this is, this is great, a fire could not be lit nor extinguished on the Sabbath. Sorry, John, your house is burning down, but uh, can't put it out, it's the Sabbath. It's ridiculous, but it goes on. You could not carry a child on the Sabbath. That would be considered work. It's, I'm telling it's ridiculous. You could not tie or untie a knot on the Sabbath. These are nothing, these rules are not in Scripture. These were added to. Listen to this one. You could sew one stitch on the Sabbath, but not more than one stitch. Who wants to sew one stitch? It's ridiculous. And this may be the most ridiculous one. If a Jew were injured on the Sabbath, it was unlawful to make him better. You could only give him enough treatment to keep him alive. Sorry, Joe. I know your leg's broken and blood's gushing out of your head. Here's an aspirin and a Band-Aid. We'll see you tomorrow. You see the ridiculous... It's just so ridiculous. This is the ridiculousness of empty religion. When you are constantly trying to earn God's favor, when you are constantly trying to earn God's forgiveness, so much so that you add additional rules to what God has already, what God has required of you, and you add those rules just so you don't mess up. Just so you don't mess things up. And so, no wonder the Sabbath was a burden and not a blessing. 
No wonder people couldn't rest on the Sabbath because they were trying to figure out which new rules and regulations am I going to miss or am I going to mess up? And that's what happened. And so this day of rest, I don't know about you, this doesn't sound like a day of rest. It sounds like a day of anxiety. And here's what would happen on the Sabbath. It would add, it would add more stress, more depression, more condemnation, more shame. Where God intended it to be a day of rest. And here's why. Religious behavior without religious affection becomes a religious burden. See, just doing religious things, just doing religious activities without a personal relationship with God, without that affection and love for God just becomes a burden. And that's exactly what happened in this text. And so verse 25, Jesus continues, and he said to them, have you not read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of, of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which Jesus goes on to say, which is not lawful. So what David did was actually unlawful according to the scriptures, according to the, to the Old Testament. And what David did is he ate the bread that was designed specifically for the priests, and then he gave it to those who were with him. And here's the thing, they, these, these Jew, Jewish religious leaders would have known this story. And they would have known that, that God did not condemn David for breaking this law. And so Jesus isn't using this story as an excuse for not following the law. What he's doing, he's comparing himself to King David. And he's saying, listen, I have come. I am the Messiah who has come, who is both king that is greater than David and priest who gives you access to God. He's comparing himself to David and saying, I am the true son of man. I am the Messiah that you've longed for. Then he explains the purpose of the Sabbath in verse 27. He says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, being Jesus, is Lord even of the Sabbath. You see, with all their rules and with all their regulations, the Pharisees had made the Sabbath, had made it to enslave people, to rule people, to control people. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, the Sabbath, this day of rest was designed to be a servant for you. It was designed to empower you. It was designed to refresh you. It was designed to be a blessing, not a burden. But that's what, that's what legalism and religion does, doesn't it? It takes what God designed to be a blessing and makes it a burden. It reduces a relationship with God to following this burdensome list of rules. That's what it does. And that's the way the Pharisees lived. And here's what happens. If, you, if, you, if your entire relationship with God has been reduced to following a list of rules, here's what's going to happen. 
You're either going to be puffed up with pride because you're doing better than other people. Or you're going to be sucked into and it's going to destroy you because you can't keep up. You can't bear the weight. Those are really your only two options. You're either going to be full of pride because you're following the rules and doing better than everybody else. Or you're going to be in in despair and it's going to destroy you. See, what God was wanting us to do in the Sabbath is to sit back and rest in what Christ has done for us. That's the purpose of the Sabbath. It's not to follow this list of rules. It's to rest in the work that Jesus has done for us. We don't have to strive anymore. We don't have to perform anymore. We don't have to to earn God's love, but we rest in what Jesus has done for us. Not only did Jesus declare his authority over the Sabbath, he demonstrates it and displays it for all to see. We're going to, get, we're going to look at one more story. And in chapter 3, he says, again, he entered the synagogue. So remember, this is the day of rest. This is the Sabbath. He enters the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Look at verse 2. And they watched Jesus. Who are they? The religious folks. They're watching Jesus. To see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. So that they might accuse him. In other words, these scribes, these Pharisees, these religious folks are watching Jesus to see if he would break the law again. They're watching Jesus to see if he would heal this man um, and break the law. Or at least the law as they defined it. And this this is so dumb. And they are completely and totally missing the point. They are saying, listen, Jesus, you can heal this man tomorrow, but you can't today because the day's the the, the Sabbath. That's just ridiculous, isn't it? They were more concerned about man-made rules than love and compassion for others. And Jesus shows us that he doesn't, he, he realized there's no need to wait for compassion. In fact, he pulls, he asked the man to come forward. And then he asked the religious folks this very important and pointed question in verse 4. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But look at their response. But they were silent. In that moment, Jesus revealed the heart of the religious establishment. In that moment, he shows us exactly what is going on in their minds. They were, this is so ironic. They were willing to accuse Jesus of doing good while at the same time plotting to kill him all on the Sabbath. Isn't that ridiculous? Like, they're like, well, let's just keep an eye on Jesus, make sure he doesn't do anything good, doesn't heal this man, but let's also, at the same time, look for ways to accuse him and to kill him. What irony. They don't care about people. They don't care about doing good. All they care about is their self, self-righteousness. And they are willing to abuse, and they are willing to use others in order to build up their own significance. That's what's going on. But Jesus is driven by love. And Jesus 
is willing to heal this man even though he knows it will cost him his life. Because the moment Jesus heals this man, he starts a march toward his death. Look what happens. Verse 5 and 6. And he looked around at them with, with what? Anger. And he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. So Jesus doesn't follow their rules and regulations. He heals the man. But look what happens next. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, seeking how they could destroy him. The moment Jesus healed this man was the moment the Pharisees and the Herodians, which they were arch enemies, they, they came together in order to destroy Jesus and to kill Jesus. And Jesus knew it. That's why he asked him the question. Is it unlawful to do, is it, is it right to do good or to kill? To save a life or to heal? And, and, and in this moment, Jesus reveals them, reveals their hearts. And he is angry. Why? Because the greatest enemy of God's love is the hardness of our hearts. And the greatest enemy of the gospel is our self-reliance, our legalism, and our man-made traditions. And Jesus is angry and he's grieved in this moment. And I have to be honest with you guys. As I was preparing this message, I felt it. Like I felt this, this, this anger and aggravation and frustration with empty religion. I found myself just just really put off with empty religion. In fact, we had an incredible discussion in our, in our small group on Wednesday night, partly because I finished the message on Wednesday night, and I was probably just more ticked than anything else because I've been just thinking through what man, how man-made religion and man-made rules, it robs people of the joy of their salvation. And it angered Jesus, and it grieved him that, 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 that this empty religion kept telling them to try harder, to do more, to try to earn God's favor, to work harder to overcome sin, to do more to be righteous. But here's what Paul told, told the church in Philippi. He said, work out your own salvation. Now some of you are going, okay, yeah, that's right. We have to work it out. We have to do what we, we have to work harder. But, but you've got to finish the passage. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for, for, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, what God does is he gives you and I grace to work out what God has worked in us. He gives us grace to work out what he has worked in us. In other words, we are both justified by grace and we're sanctified by grace. We are saved by grace and we are made more like Jesus by grace. It's not by our own works and our own, and our own earning and our own trying harder. The more we strive in our own strength, the more depressed, the more defeated you will become. Why? Because you can't 
do it in your own strength. You need God's grace in order for Him to work in us and through us. And it is only by God's grace that He does that. So we, we need to stop trying. We need to surrender to Jesus and rest in His grace. Why? Because that is why He came. Listen, Jesus came to give us true joy. That picture that he gave us with the bridegroom. That this is not a time of fasting. This is a time of celebration. And he's not saying that we shouldn't fast. Because we certainly should fast. In fact, there are times in the New Testament where the early church did fast. But what he is saying is like our fasting should still be a time of joy. Why? Because the, that's why Jesus came. He came to bring us pure and true joy. So in other words, enjoy the feast. So he came to give us joy. But he also, he also came to give a Sabbath, true Sabbath, where you and I get to rest in the work that Christ has done for us. And we don't have to wait until Sundays to rest in him. We are to rest every day of the week in the work that Jesus has done for us. But Jesus also came to give us true restoration. Just like he restored this, wither, this hand of this withered man, Jesus came to restore our hard hearts. He didn't come to bring about a new religion. He came to invite us into a relationship with him. That's why Jesus came. For true joy, true Sabbath, true restoration. Not an old, tired religion. But a fresh, new relationship with him. Let's pray. So Jesus, we are grateful for the, the work that you have done for us. We don't have to work and earn our salvation because the reality is we can't. We can't earn our salvation. All we can do is come to you, believe that Jesus, your work on the cross was enough. And we repent and we turn from our sins and we follow you. So Lord, I know that there are people either here in this room or watching online that are, you're still striving, you're still trying to work, you're tr still trying to earn your way to God. Listen, stop. God, give them the strength to stop working for you and to rest in the forgiveness and the grace that you provide and father there's so often and so easy for us to get caught up in religion caught up into a list of do's and don'ts and we forsake this relationship that you've invited us into and god it's like we're pouring new wine and old wine skins and and we know that it will never work so, Father, help us to cast aside all of that religion. That idea that we have to follow this burdensome list of do's and don'ts and help us to understand and grasp the fact that you invite us into a relationship. 
And Father, for those that are here this morning that have never entered into a relationship with you, God, I pray that you would right now give them the strength and the courage to say, Jesus, I trust you. I've been trying to do this on my own, and Jesus, I place my faith in the work that you've done on my behalf. And I want to follow you because I know that who I follow will be a reflection of how I live. So, Father, I pray that you give them the courage to talk to the person that invited them today, to talk to the person that brought them today, to talk to the person that are sitting, they're sitting with today to say, I'm ready to give my life to Christ. To forsake this idea of religion and striving and performance and to completely surrender to Jesus. Lord, give them the grace to do that today because it is only by your grace that we have the power for forgiveness and the power to grow and to become more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.